Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Chris Birch. We're at Coelho Winery in Amity. It's July 27, 2023. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. First question, why wine? Why wine? I studied accounting and finance. <laughs> That's how I got into the wine industry. Um, tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Hillsburg, California. Went to Hillsburg High School. Uh, went to college at Fresno State. Uh, studied business administration with a focus on accounting and finance. And uh, upon graduation, came back home. Had a, obviously growing up in Hillsburg, had a lot of friends in uh, the wine industry. And uh, I was studying for the CPA exam, and uh, one of my good friends called me and said, hey, you know how to drive a forklift and drink beer? And of course, uh, fresh out of college, I know how to do that. And uh, it turned out, you know, they needed some help in the office, and I started to do budgeting, and that's kind of how I really got my start in the wine industry. I got to work with uh, this beautiful lady from, uh, <clears throat> I went to school with in high school that I didn't even know she was studying wine or anything like that. and. Uh, that's how I learned how to taste and fix things and all I need to, all I do now. Tell me about your, obviously you grew up in and around wine. Tell me about your sort of initial impressions of wine and of the industry. Well, I thought it was a very fun industry because you always see people, you know, big dinners. I mean, Sonoma County is very much a place where, you know, you have family, community all kind of coming together and, you know, big dinner parties. I was always kind of fun to me because, you know, I came from a fairly small family. I'm an only child, so, you know, to kind of have this big community around me was very enticing to me. And, you know, of course, in that area, you know, grow everything, you love to cook, you know, friends are always doing something. So, I mean, it's just a beautiful area to, to grow up in, for sure. And another thing, too, I guess I forgot, my mother is a Spanish teacher, so I was always the guy that uh, talked to the vineyard workers and in the cellar because I knew how to speak Spanish as well. It's a perfect background for getting into wine. I guess without, so, without, yeah, without right? knowing it. Yeah. So tell me about the initial work as you were kind of invited in to start kind of casually working in wine. What, what was it you were doing and how did it progress? Yeah, so we kind of were doing, a, this winery was doing like a lot of kind of restaurant groups, kind of large clients. And, uh, you know, we would purchase bulk wine and, you know, kind of fix it up to their specs, let's, let's call it. And, uh, you know, that's where I really learned how to taste and kind of with a budgeting background, I kind of, Learned very quickly that, you know, if you maybe pay a dollar more a gallon, you can get, you know, more throughput at the end. Or if we bought something less expensive, we could, you know, quote unquote, fix it, you know, as they, as they would say. It's, I would say it's the traditional path from, you know, a lot of winemaking, because a lot of winemaking, you know, they kind of have this beautiful idea of how it should be. You know, you grow the grapes, bring it to the winery and poof magic. But, uh, you know, that's, I think that's a very small part of the industry where, you know, I'm, I guess I would say I'm more on the larger scale side. Some people call it industrial, but you know, I just try to get the wine to the best at the best price to the most amount of people possible. That was kind of my philosophy and outlook. Tell me about your initial work in the cellar. As you, uh, what, what was the production work like? <clears throat> oh, just kind of dragging hoses, cleaning stuff all the time. You know, pretty traditional cellar things. But as I spent more time in the cellar, it's like. I started to think about how can we do this better, faster, 
you know, all the all those types of things. Because you know, in the wine industry, you know, everybody wants to keep everything the same. Like, oh, this is how they did it 200 years ago. But you know, in this very competitive environment we live in, you know, I try to find efficiencies. You know, like maybe if we got a bigger pump, maybe if we, you know cut all the hoses to a certain length rather than figuring out how many hoses we need. You know, if you're five tanks deep, you need five pieces of hose. You know, just look, kind of little silly things like that. I guess they're not silly, but you know, for, you know, if you have a lot of people in the cellar, it's just like, hey, we're going to be in tank five. It's five pieces of hose plus a short one to the pump. You know, go grab five hoses before, you know, they drag out 30 hoses and try to figure it out and you wasted, you know, 15, 20 minutes. So, you know, I've always kind of been that, how can we do this better, faster, quicker, better kind of idea. Uh, at what point did the idea of production work start to kind of take over instead of uh, business or accounting? Or at what point did you kind of feel like winery work was what you wanted to do? Uh, well, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I kind of got to apply my accounting and finance, which, you know, I thought I would make my mom proud and wear a suit to work every day. But uh, I guess it didn't work out very well. But I got to apply it and, you know, kind of if you have this kind of kind of like I think about it like kind of tangential thinking where you kind of think about it in two different planes, you know, you can kind of get a better result out of something where you, know, you can be like, well, you know, if we spent this over here, we could save this over here and I can prove it by the math and the kind of the budgeting aspect of it. And, you know, some places you work might be into that and some places maybe not. But I've been in a place I've been very lucky where they've been very open to kind of these ideas and, you know, let's try it out. So, you know, for all the young winemakers out there, always try things out. That's what I should, that's, that'd be my word of advice for the day. <laughs> Your curiosity. Curiosity's, uh, I've always been a very curious person, so. Tell me about turning that toward wine. You mentioned sort of learning to taste and learning about wine. Tell me about your kind of your wine education. How did you start to understand wine, both on a kind of a regional, a regional way and on a taste way? And what wines did you find attractive? Oh, well, my first learning about wine is, you know, of course, my father being Italian, you know, we always had our, our Dago Red, which, you know, at, knowing what I know now was just a big VA bomb, but you know, that's, I guess, you know, what they liked back then. And uh, I remember I was in Napa doing something and I had a French Chardonnay for the first time. And I was, I remember to this day, I was in Yonville and I was like, what in the world is this? This is awesome. Because uh, at the time when I started in the wine industry was the era, or the beginning of the era of butter bomb Chardonnay. So, when I thought about Chardonnay <laughs> working in, in Hillsburg was butter, oak, and more butter, and more oak, and how can we get even more? And then, you know, I was at this place and I had this French Chardonnay, I believe it was a Corton Charlemagne or something like that, and uh, it was just amazing. Amazing. And then I kind of got into Pinot Noir. I mean, I've always liked Zinfandels and things like that, because that's kind of like the, I would say, the Sonoma County grape, you know, you're kind of red blend, Zinfandel-based type things. I always enjoyed those, but, uh, you know, being in the industry, you see that go from big fruit bombs to, you know, kind of green to less acidity, kind of all over the place. But, you know, everything has cycles and turns and it comes back and forth all the time. So, you know, I grew up in the butter bomb era and then it went away and now it's kind of starting to come back again. So I'd say wine's, you know, a 10, 15 year cycle of trends and, you know, in the consumer market, I think that's when people kind of start out with something, they like it, and they kind of grow up and move away from it. You know, we see that as well, even with the wines that we make as well.
So as you were kind of getting into the industry and as you were there, what was sort of the next step for you? How did, how did, your, how did your sort of journey unfold after that? Well, I was kind of worked in the office and then of course I went to the cellar and then they kind of gave me the title of, you know, cellar worker, then assistant winemaker. And then uh, 2013 came around and uh, <clears throat> the family that I worked for, there was kind of a, uh, a change in leadership, which uh, didn't work very well for me. And uh, kind of that harvest, I remember in October, it was the last day I was driving a machine picking a field. and. Uh, I just got on wine jobs and looked for openings, and uh, this was the time Oregon had the great monsoon. So I came up here post-monsoon, pretty much applied the first place that took me. I was like, all right, I'll be there in uh, two days. And I drove up here and uh, never came back, <laughs> pretty much. Were you excited about Oregon specifically, or was it like the first thing you found? Uh, I had some curiosity about it. I mean, you know, growing up in, you know, Hillsburg, you know, you have Rush River Valley, Pinot, Chardonnay, things like that. So I knew I really liked Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And Oregon was kind of like, it's a new up and coming thing, kind of fun and cool. And, you know, sure, let's do it. <laughs> so what was the first thing you did up here? I, uh, I landed at Tresedum Winery, which is out in uh, Ribbon Ridge, James Fry. I think, uh, he hired me on a Saturday. I showed up on Monday, and uh, they were just starting up harvest again. And you know, very different from where I was. Very small, you know, like little small ferments. I was used to, you know, big 30, 40 ton ferments, and now I'm down to like five ton ferments, two ton ferments. So I was like, wow, this place is small. Why do you have so many interns? <laughs> you know. And I think the first day, I think I, you could ask James about it, but I think I did the work of like about two or three interns, like in half the day and I was already getting bored. So kind of, you know, the smaller thing was nice because I think it really, you know, showed, you know, kind of focused down on things because I was just so used to such large production and, you know, big moving, you know, kind of California always moving all the time. So Oregon was a huge change of scenery for me. Just trying try to slow down, which, you know, at the time I think I needed as well because I was kind of, all over the place, <laughs> all over the place. What did you, what were your initial impressions of Oregon's industry then, or of the, of the people here and of the, of the wines as you were starting to meet people and, and see wineries? It was slow, very slow, very slow. Very small and, and very slow. I mean, that was like the first thing in my head. And then as I came around here, you know, I think uh, there's a big difference between California and Oregon. I think Oregon winemakers are much more passionate, much more focused, where kind of California I feel, you know, they kind of follow trends a little bit more. They want to be on the forefront of the trend, and I think Oregon just makes their own trend, and they just own it, for sure, 100%. So what were the other adjustments for you? Obviously, you mentioned a different size, different speed. Uh, was working with the grapes up here or working with the equipment up here any different than what you had been used to? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot smaller, a lot more manual type things, you know, like kind of pump overs, a lot of punch downs. I mean... You know, working in a large winery, we have like pneumatic punch down machines, pulse air, you know, kind of integrated pump over devices in the, uh, in the wineries and, and stuff like that. And, you know, just a lot of manual digging and, you know, being the efficiency guy. And it's like, why don't we, you know, do these things? And it's like, we don't do things like that. We do it like this. And it's like, well, as I did 200 years ago, it's, you know, 2013 or 2020 or, you know, whatever date it is. So, yeah, it was, it was good. What was your next step after that? Uh, I came here to Coelho in uh, 2016. What was the role and what attracted you to this place? 
I think I kind of grew out of Trusatum in the sense that, you know, I kind of wanted something bigger because the smaller thing, it was fun and it was working, but I kind of want to do something bigger and, you know, a little more volume than, uh, than Trusatum had to offer. And, uh, you know, we had a conversation and, you know, it's kind of like this I'm looking at and James wishing me the best and applied here and got it and freaked out because now I'm actually in charge of things or, you know, you've always had like tile like seller master, assistant winemaker, you know, you always get kind of things handed down to you, but the first time when you were in charge is kind of a holy crap, what have I got myself into type of thing. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it was interesting for sure. Well, tell me about that. Obviously a big transition. So what were the biggest sort of, as you, as you got to Coelho and you saw what was here, what did you see? see that was already here and what did you want to kind of implement in your first year or two? Well, the, when I first got here, I think uh, they were kind of going through a transition as well. Their son was leaving for Germany and, you know, it was kind of midway through finishing the vintage, starting to bottle and, you know, <clears throat> I knew a little about Coilo wines. I'd, you know, tasted them and whatnot, but, you know, actually coming and doing the production yourself is kind of like, I had the conversation and like, what kind of wines do you like and what do you want to have your name on? And, you know, that was a quite a long process because the language of wine is two different things. You know, if I say strawberries, I may think of, you know, like fresh Oregon strawberries and you may think of like Driscoll strawberries you buy in the store. They're still strawberries, but two vastly different things. So I think it took us about three months of tasting through the cellar to kind of figure out, you know, our language and how we talk to each other and what the end product that they really wanted in the bottle. And, uh, you know, a lot of trials, a lot of blending, a lot of <clears throat> arguments, yelling and screaming, you know, which is all part of it. But, uh, you know, that's how that's that's what you have to do to, you know, get things done. You know, I think I came with kind of a an idea because when I was at Tristatum, that's where Resonance was starting their Oregon project. So I got to spend some time with Jacques Lardier and. Uh, you know, everyone out there who knows Jacques Lardier, he's a kind of crazy Frenchman. I mean, just talking to him, it doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, when you kind of step away from it and you kind of think about it, because now you're like in his position of being the winemaker and doing all the things, it's kind of like, wait, this is what he was talking about. Oh, this makes sense now. You know, because at the time, you know, he kind of talks and you're just kind of enamored by, you know, his, the way he talks and, you know, his analogies. And when you actually like, applied the things, it's like, wow, this guy knows his stuff, which, you know, I knew he knew his stuff, but just kind of coming across, it's like, what the world is he talking about? And, uh, you know, try to do, apply some things like that, kind of change some things around. And, you know, there's always apprehension when you come to a new place, you know, like, you know, they've, they've been around for quite a while and, you know, they know what works. And, you know, here's this, you know, new guy coming in and kind of wants to change everything. So kind of, I told him, you know, we'll keep 80% the same, but let's play with 20 mm -hmm. just to see what happens. Because, you know, you never know. We might find something interesting and, and fun, and maybe we can run with that. So they've really given me the latitude to kind of explore and, you know, of course, to make things more efficient and try to find new styles and kind of, I guess, dial things in, as you could say, to, you know, what they like. Because at the end of the day, you know, they write my paycheck, so I can't do what I want. I, I have the philosophy of, you know, they're my boss, so you know I need to figure out what they want and you know make them happy first and foremost. Tell me about the seller here and about uh, obviously being in charge of it for the first time. What did you want to change for efficiency's sake, and what did you kind of what was your kind of approach to taking over a seller? 
Well, I mean, I, I kind of had some ideas of, you know, what I wanted to do and kind of blend that into like what they already had here because, you know, they had, they had a good thing going. I mean, they opened in 04, so they've been around quite a while. And, uh, you know, you don't want to flip everything on their head, you know, meeting the people, meeting their customer base because, you know, the customer base of like, say, a Trisatum is very different than our customer base down here. You know what they like, what they look forward to, and, you know, maybe what we can change and kind of, I asked a lot of questions, a lot, a lot of questions, and, you know, did a lot of tastings with people of, you know, kind of do you like, in barrels especially, do you like medium toast or medium plus or medium long? And I really like to set up kind of like profiles of tasting where, you know, you have all the same wine, you know, different cooperages, different barrels, different toast levels, and kind of have them side by side because I think that's where you can really dial into, you know, some really fine detail that kind of creates like the, what I would call like the house style. You know, because <clears throat> I think uh, from what I learned from Jacques Lardier and what we do with our single vineyards here is we essentially do everything exactly the same. And some people may say, you know, that's recipe winemaking and, you know, this and that. And, you know, that's fine. They can have their opinion. But from what I learned with Jacques and about like terroir tasting, you know, if you do, say, one vineyard with some whole cluster and you do one vineyard all de-stemmed and you kind of change those little bitty parameters to kind of kind of create the style that you like, are you really tasting terroir? So I kind of like took that and really ran with it and the, the Quailos really helped me with that because they really believe in that because, you know, I think uh, <clears throat> we're very lucky here in the sense we have had our same vineyard crew for almost going on like 15 years. so. You know, I could go out into the vineyard and say like, hey guys, I want to do these five rows and I want you to do this. And, and because I speak Spanish, I can really explain it to them. And I think the beauty of that is they can do that there and look at me like I'm absolutely crazy and then keep everything all separate. And then I can bring them back in here and they can taste it and see. And it's just like, oh yeah, this is, this is different than that. And I'm like, yeah, you remember you pulled the leaves like this and they go, oh. And then from them, you know, the guys that act, are actually out there every day, they can have ownership and appreciate why they're doing something. To me, that's absolutely important of like why we're doing this. And I try to make it, you know, have everyone understand, you know, especially with like the vineyard crew, like, hey, I want you to pull leaves like this, and this is the end result. And then so, you know, like I say, at the time, you know, they're arguing me, looking at me like, oh man, this crazy guy, oh, making us more work. But you know, when you come in and taste it, and it's like, oh, now we know why. And now they actually like look forward to it. And you know, you can kind of, build that basis of, you know, conversation and understanding. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. You know, it's a, you know, we're a family winery and, you know, family is everything. And, you know, if you can have more parts of your family, you have, you know, greater, broader understanding. It's, uh, to me, that's the most fulfilling part, quite honestly. Tell me a little bit about getting to know the, the vineyards here. Uh, how, for approach, especially approaching with with that kind of mentality, you're going to change this, you're going to tweak that. Um, how long does it take you to get? To, how long did it take you to get familiar with the vineyards here and to kind of figure out what you wanted to try with them? Oh, we're still figuring it out. <laughs> I mean, every year's different. It seems like here in Oregon. I mean, I haven't been here that long, but you know, from 2013 to 2023, I can't say maybe 18 and 19 are fairly similar vintages. But other than that, I mean, you're like all over the board. We've had smoke. We've had rain in September, we've had mold rot, mildew, perfect years. <laughs> it's hard to say. That's why I try to keep the protocol the same. So that way, you know, just because of like one thing in the vineyard or, you know, this or that, I just try to keep everything the same. So kind of our philosophy is right, wrong or indifferent. This is what we have. 
and even with all three of our vineyards, when we pour them in the tasting room, since we've done everything the same, you can really taste the difference between each one. And you know, I'm not going to say one's better than the other. I mean, I have my favorites, yes, of course. But uh, I'll let you make that decision because you know we're here as educators, and you know, in the wine world is so broad and vast. We try to just kind of break it down to its simplest parts, and you know, we do everything the same. The same guys farm it. The same guys make it. We use the same types of barrels every year. Two new ones, two once filled, two second filled. Make the blend of those six right, wrong, or indifferent, and that's what we have. <laughs> there's, you know, if you don't like any of it, we say there's 900 other wineries you can go visit. Here's a list. <laughs> I know that sounds maybe arrogant, but you know, I mean, people love different styles, and you know, kind of when you make this, I don't wouldn't call it monolithic, but you know, there's kind of subtle changes, and some people are ready for that, and some people aren't, but. I think you know, 99% of people say, yes, the Quayla vineyard is different from our Delfina vineyard. And you can say, yeah, it's because of the soil, it's because of the microclimate and the, the AVAs. And it's like, yeah, that's AVAs in, uh, in Oregon. And most people come away, they feel very educated and you know, they just kind of love that type of thing. So I think that's what we really excel at is kind of teaching and and you know things like that because I feel with like my accounting background I can kind of compartmentalize all those things and kind of break it down for you know the new wine drinker the seasoned wine drinker to maybe push that seasoned person over the edge a little bit or kind of push on their ideas of you know what's what and this is this and that's that and uh, you know like I say with our 80-20 rule we always experiment with stuff in the cellar maybe a different yeast a different process so with our wine club we always try to do two ferments that are two kind of opposite ends of the winemaking spectrum, right? So, you know, I think last year we did, you know, like a whole cluster and then we did like a carbonic and it's like a lot of people say, well, whole cluster is carbonic and we go, well, carbonic really should have a lid on it, 100% presence of CO2. So we went to those absolute extremes mm -hmm. and did those two things and then you can taste them side by side. So it's very fun, you know, our wine club things, you know, there's the argument of which one's better, this one or that one. and you know, it's always funny because it's always 60, 40, one side or the other. And yeah, it's a, it's a great conversation and it helps me, you know, because it's like maybe we need to put a little, you know, make a different blend or change this blend a little bit and add a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Because, you know, the market's always changing, tastes are always changing. So we try to be ahead of it versus behind it and, you know, follow the trends. We try to make trends and not follow them, right, wrong or indifferent. But, you know, that's what we try to do. <laughs> You mentioned the your sort of the the way you use barrels. Tell me about coming up with uh, that kind of that kind of decision. How how long does it take you to figure out like this is the profile we're going to use each year? This is the this is the protocols we're going to put wine through. Um, well, again, that was like going back to like what what Dave and D. Linda wanted in their wines. You know, Dave wants a very structured Pinot Noir. You know, with rich color. You know, ageability, all those things. So it's kind of like in my head, it's like okay, we need a lot of extraction. We need like you know some kind of coarse grain to get those coarser tannins in there that'll age over time. And you know every time I think about that, I think about Jacques Lardier and his conversation about tannins and how they're the the battery for the future. And you know a lot of my friends in my world, it's just like, oh, your wines are so tannic. It's like, well, do you want to drink them now or five years from now? So <clears throat> we've been here so long, we have the time to like let the wine age in barrel, let it age in our warehouse, so we can. You know, release wines two, three years, you know, after like the current vintage where it's starting to get into that, you know, almost five year window where they're just starting to really pop. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think that makes 
you know, it's good conversation because it's funny when people come in, it's like, oh, you're only pouring the 17s. It's like, well, yeah, because uh, this is the way we made it and right, educating them why we do things the way we do. And it's kind of like, oh, that tastes very fresh and it's almost like brand new. It's like this tastes almost fresher than some of the newer wines we were out tasting. It's like, yeah, imagine if you had a 21. You know, and then we can pull that out as well, pull stuff from the library and, you know, I think uh, our tastings are, you know, they are what they are, but we try to structure them with our staff and whatnot to try to, you know, answer as many questions as possible. And I think that's, that's what really keeps me going, you know, every day is I just love that curiosity of people and myself and it challenges me as well. But, uh, but for the barrels though, I think when uh, we find something, when I first started, we tasted a ton of barrels and you know, a lot of connections here. You know, we go into other cellars and taste things and it's kind of like, you see, when you see a reaction like, oh, I like this kind of profile and it's just like, my accounting barrel cake can be like, okay, that's an expensive barrel, so how do we find something that's maybe 20, 30% less that gets us 90% there? So they'd go on the journey of, you know, okay, we're gonna get these barrels, these are trial barrels, you know, and then you kind of narrow that down to, you get six, you narrow that down to two or three, and then you do it the next year because vintage change. But I think now we've done it now for going on eight years. We've kind of dialed in our, our barrel program, but there's always new and fun things out there. So we always try new and different stuff. But there's certain barrels with our vineyards that just sing. We pour them to people. It's like, you know, this is 100% new wood, and they're like, there's no way. It's like, well, when you find the right barrel that just, works together and you know you don't even know it's there and that's what I try to shoot for especially like in the Chardonnays and whatnot trying to still uh, get that Corton Charlemagne-esque profile which is very elusive <laughs> with the Oregon Chardonnay but uh, that's what we shoot for. And you, I was gonna, my next question was gonna be about other varietals other than Pinot. So obviously you make other things here. Tell me about how you sort of added to the program and what, what challenges are presented by working with, with the different grapes. Well, since the Quilos, <coughs> excuse me, are Portuguese, we do, they did, had this one before I even got here, so we do port wine, and uh, we actually do with Portuguese Iberian varietals. And there's a awesome gentleman, Ron Silva, who actually like imported the vine material from Portugal through Davis to his uh, place, and it's in Galt, it's right outside of Lodi. And so they're like the legit Portuguese varietals, and it's very different than, than Pinot because you know, you're talking warmer climate grapes, higher pH, just big fruity things, and you know, it's kind of like, well, I guess we'll just make it like Pinot, you know? So essentially, we do kind of everything the same kind of structurally, so we have that house style, but you know, it's kind of fun because Oregon is so Pinot centric. I mean, 99% of what we do here is Pinot maybe half percent Chardonnay, quarter percent Pinot Gris and the Portuguese stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really fun. And since I've been here, we did a Portuguese white, like a table style white, because they were in Portugal in 18. And I asked, like, what's the coolest thing you had there? You know, like, well, we're having clams, you know, by the ocean. And we had this really nice white wine. It's like, well, why don't we make a white wine like that? And they go, why don't we? Like, well, let's do it. So just kind of head first and just let it rip. <laughs> with port specifically, was that something you had familiarity with before or was that something you, you learned, had to learn on the run? Uh, we made a little bit of it in California, but you know, I had to delve into that and kind of like, what, how do they actually do it in Portugal and, and stuff like that. So I try to bring a little bit of that to here as well. But I mean, port's, it's relatively easy. You know, you have your high proof, 
add it to the press line, dies, put it in barrel. Five years later, that's, that's kind of, you know. I think the thing with pour, you really have to find the balance of like your spirit edition and like your, uh, your balance in your sugar where you fortify it. That's the big secret to pour. So it's a lot of, and usually it's about two o'clock in the morning. So that's the longest night of, the, of harvest for sure. Because uh, you have to like add it really slow and you got to keep tasting and usually it's like, yeah, just add it, it'll be fine. We're good to go. Because <laughs> you're just so tired of tasting. <laughs> so tell me about your, uh, obviously you, you came in, you had, a, you had a pretty specific winemaking style, you had a pretty specific kind of idea for how to make wine. So how, if at all, has that changed since you've been a head winemaker? Um, and how would you sort of describe your, your winemaking style now? Um, I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's changed too much. I mean, what I think we've done here too is try to, you know, automate, I don't think it's the right word, but kind of add, you know, kind of like the new technical things in winemaking because uh, I was at um, <clears throat> one of the winemaking shows and I saw this thing called Pulse Air for the first time and I'm like, that's like a punch down, but it's like an inverted punch down with air. And I'm like, that would be awesome. I'm like, how do we do that? So I got in, in touch with the, Charlie Parks there and you know we actually had the tanks plumbed for it and I'm just like we need to try this out because at the time like being an efficiency guy we had a guy up there pumping over the tanks like 45 minutes because we were doing like 25 ton ferments and I'm like we could probably do this in a lot less time so you know we invested in the machine and you know the first year we used it was a big learning curve but you know we went from you know 40-45 minutes to about five minutes you know mixing the tanks and actually from that we got better extraction, better flavors and, and everything. And it was just like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. And, you know, something from there, I mean, we've grown quite a bit. We've added more tanks. And, you know, two years ago, we took the big leap of kind of getting the system, the automated system where, you know, we can program it to, you know, our specs and parameters for harvest. And, you know, I played with Pulsar quite a bit and uh, it's like, I think it's the coolest innovation in the wine space right now for like ferment and stuff like that. And um, I've kind of parlayed it into other things like using it to drain tanks as well. And I kind of got a little bit of pushback on that from some peers like, aren't you worried about extraction and this and that and solids and it's just like, no, not really. I mean, we kind of deal with it as it is. Certain years are different than others, but you know, I, I kind of don't mind the solids and wines. I mean, everyone's different, but uh, we use it because some of our wines, and we make some wines for clients as well that, you know, they're kind of very quick to market. So, you know, that kind of process, you know, I don't, I don't feel hurts it at all. And, you know, they've <clears throat> very much benefited from that. And uh, yeah, I think, that, I think it was 2019 harvest when, you know, we kind of had a big increase in production where we had the, the pulse air on the cart and we had, you know, five 12K tanks and three 6Ks we'd try to pulse, you know what I mean? It takes five minutes to do it by the time you hook up the lines and you unhook them and you hook them to the next tank, you're talking 20 minutes, a half an hour. So you're talking, you know, four or five hours, you know, there and then the fruit comes in. It's like, oh, hey, we got to do this. Did you pulse the tank? Oh, no. So then there's that harvest where it's like, oh, this tank probably didn't get pulsed or pumped over anything in like two days and it was <gasps> freaking out. So I think that was the point where it's like, okay, we need to do this. And then now we have the automated system. Now it's just like, God, why didn't we get this five years ago? 
you know. But I will say for the people looking into it, it does take time to work and you really have to play with it. But once you kind of find that sweet spot of kind of programming and, you know, pulse rate, pressure, time, yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's really awesome. Because now, now even when we do tanks, like now we have 50 ton tanks and, you know, traditionally I've, when I first started and we would drain those out, you know, it would take, you know, two, three hours to drain it. Then you'd have two guys in there digging it out three, four hours later. And, you know, one day, one tank. Now, one guy, we can drain it out 45 minutes and on to the next one. So we went from one tank a day, now you can do almost three a day. <laughs> and with the investment in like larger press and all that stuff too. And uh, even with that, I did a lot of research and, you know, it always kind of bothered me how these, you know, when you're repressing like say Chardonnay, for example, like, oh, you should take a long time, very gentle and, you know, this and that. And in my head, I'm going, you're squeezing this like at two bars. How can you be gentle? Like it, like fundamentally in my head, it just didn't make any sense. And then <clears throat> when I was at Tristan with Jacques Lardier, he just wanted to press it hard and fast. And it's kind of like, it makes much more sense because <clears throat> if you think about extraction, you know, the more time it's in the press, kind of juices coming around the grapes and the stems, you're extracting all that stuff out. So if you just do it kind of hard and fast, you don't have the skin contact time and things like that. So it's like, hmm, yeah, we can do that. And then I found a system where rather than pressing on time, you press by volume. So it's a programmable feature in the press. It works off a flow meter where if the press is like flowing like underneath your parameter, it'll automatically skip to the next you know, time portion of the program. So if you had like five minutes at five millibar and you know, your flow rate starts tapering down at two minutes, it automatically kicks to the next cycle. You know, more pressure, more time, you get your surge of juice and if it slows down to under the parameter, it automatically goes. So you can take, you know, three, four hour press cycle and make an hour and a half and get the same or more yield that's better. And it's just kind of like, wow, why didn't we get this five years ago? You know, and I don't know, it's funny when I go to other places, it's just like, oh, you guys do this and that there, and it's just like, yeah, it's, it's no problem, really, you know. Other places, you know, I mean, we do probably 30, 35 tons an hour processing-wise, and, and, you know, I see other places doing like five or six, like, oh, that was a big day, and I'm just like, oh, man. So, yeah, it's, it's fun. It makes harvest fun and challenging, and, you know, I kind of, gets us going kind of like, you know, when we get the big load of fruit and it's like, all right, we've got to do this in an hour, so let's go. You know, especially with the interns, it's like, you know, if we can do it, you can do it too. We dare you. So a lot of competition around here for harvest especially. You know, I think we love the competition and I think uh, <clears throat> I kind of have a very much can-do attitude. So if you say I can't do it, I'm going to try even harder to do it. So, and then uh, I think, uh, Dave's very much like that too. It's like you can't tell that guy no. If you tell him no, he'll he'll try harder. And then you get me on there too. So then you get both of us to do it. And yeah, get out of the way. <laughs> you mentioned the growth and, and all of that. Tell me about sort of scaling and and how obviously you came from higher production background. But tell me about scaling a place like this. Uh, what were the sort of the biggest challenges to to making more wine here? Uh, space. <clears throat> we're in a we're in a very tight space. I mean, we're in town. I mean, we don't have the luxury of kind of expanding out and like say to the acreage. So we have to kind of you know pack things in here like sardines. So Portuguese like sardines. So I guess they're very good at packing uh, things in there. So 
kind of uh, <clears throat> kind of our policies are just kind of funny. You know, the Quails have 13 grandkids now, so every time there's a new grandkid, I get a new tank because all the tanks are named after the grandkids. So we need to get that in the budget for next year. So it seems like every time we get a tank, it's bigger. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and always just kind of like looking for, you know, other things to do. I mean, it's always helpful when you can, you know, bring clients on, to, you know, kind of help, you know, finance those things. And of course, you know, like being a finance guy, it's like, okay, if the tank costs XYZ, if we had XYZ and, you know, client custom crush coming in, you know, there's, you know, there's outlay of money, but, you know, it kind of covers the costs and, you know, you're kind of net zero, you know, money out because it's coming in, you know, I kind of try to strategize, you know, about things like that, you know, you know, custom bottling and trying to make deals with our, you know, bottling company to, you know, for long-term contracts for fixed pricing so we can really adjust, uh, you know, our rates and, you know, capitalize on the, the growth of the hurricane wine industry. Obviously you mentioned custom crush and working with clients. Tell me about when a client approaches you or when you're working with a client, tell me about hitting, sort of figuring out what it is they want and hitting the mark. How, how, do, you, how do you approach that and how do you sort of uh, communicate with them what you're going to be making for them or how you're, you're going to make it? Yeah, so I really try to get to them like what works best for me is um, if they want to make like a certain style, let's just say Mayomi for example, right? <clears throat> Big broad brand, there they go, <clears throat> I want this style of wine but I want A, B, C, X, Y, Z and I go, Okay, so what's our budget? What's time frame? All these, this and that, and you know, we kind of sort out those parameters, and then uh, I start sourcing, you know, some bulk wine, and start kind of putting some blends together, and then I kind of, you know, kind of go to extremes of you know what they want in their profile, like too much wood, not enough, too toasty, too much vanilla, too much this and that, and then we kind of filter it into kind of what they want, and then. Uh, we just kind of scale it from there. And I mean, we've had clients where we've had very tight turnarounds where essentially we're getting the, the bulk wine in and you know, 10 days later, uh, it's bawling and on like the 14th day, it's going out on trucks. So I've kind of, <clears throat> you know, I kind of like those challenges and it's very fun to do. And you know, if you have things like Pulsar and you know, I've seen these machines, these infusing machines where you can, you know, take oak chips instead of six weeks, you can turn into, you know, four or five days with extraction. You know, it's like, that's a $60,000 machine and I have an automated system. Why can't I put these two things together? You know, you kind of play with it and, and kind of make it work and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's fun to do, it's challenging, but <clears throat> I usually try to find a, uh, a middle ground with clients. You know, it's kind of like, we're not gonna get this exact thing, but if we can get 80% there, 70% there, is that good enough for your market or your market segment that you're shooting for? So I think it's always the conversation of like being on the same page and you know, knowing your limits and your parameters and, and things like that. But you know, kind of back to where I started, like I kind of started, I learned to taste kind of like through profiles. Like you know, if restaurant group A wanted you know, an Italian style red wine, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, so they would bring bottles of like what they wanted so it's kind of like you kind of put that in your head and your my accounting brain and kind of that went in this compartment here and then you kind of taste through some bulk wine samples and you know you do some product additions and it's kind of like oh yeah that kind of hits that note there and that note there and you know that's kind of how I taste so I don't really look at the 
lab sheets and things like that. I mean, it's important, but you know, more important is what it tastes like. Like, you know, you could have the wrong pH, you could have the wrong acidity, but does it taste good? And is it what the client wants? So perfect, because none of that stuff's on the back of the label anyway. So unless you're a master SOM, you can say, oh, that pH is wrong, but okay. <laughs> we sell like 10,000 cases of it, prove me wrong, <laughs> right? So I think that's the, that's the biggest dichotomy that I see is kind of, <clears throat> there's these kind of herds where, you know, it should be like this and it should be like that. And I guess I would be the outlier where it's just like, does it taste good? Yes or no? Do people buy it? Do they want to buy it again? Because like we've seen things here where we think it's <clears throat> really fun and it works really well and it doesn't sell. Because, you know, you can make the best 100 point wine ever, but if it doesn't sell, it's not a, I don't know if I'd have a job for very much longer. You know what I mean? So I think that's, that's a big challenge, I think, for young winemakers as well. They have this idea of, you know, we're going to make Romney Conti Pinot and <clears throat> 95 points and all this and that. They get stuck on the points. And you know, it's a very specific market for that. And I think that's a small microchasm of the broader wine industry is that. Here's about 2020 uh, and your in adventures in winemaking that year. Tell me about <laughs> tell me about the specific the challenges of 2020, both uh, pandemic side and, and harvest side, um, and how, how what the challenges were that were that were in front of you and how you approached them. Oof, that was a year to forget for sure. Uh, 2020, the year of smoke. We, uh, <clears throat> I would say, I, ha I have some very good relationships because I'm very open to you know trying products and you know I, I work very closely with our. Uh, we call them, I would say, you know, I call them magic products, our magicians call it. Um, and uh, it's kind of like, okay, how do we deal with this stuff? And <clears throat> it's kind of like, oh, you could do this, you could do that. And I'm just like, hey, man, I got to make like 50,000 cases for this client. And, you know, we already have orders for it. And uh, this can't be messed up. So I guess I was worried and kind of excited all at the same time like I'm just gonna kick this thing in the butt and you know like oh, no problems only solutions you know and uh, yeah it was challenging for sure but uh, <clears throat> I think 2020 I was very proactive about it I think a lot of people you know kind of rolled with it with the smoke and I think certain vineyards were affected more than others but I was very proactive like I did all my treatments in the in the fruit juice phases before it even got to ferment because uh, from my research and findings that um, <clears throat> once you kind of free that smoke molecule like in the ferment and it kind of attaches to that alcohol molecule, that's when you have the biggest problem. So what we try to do is kind of break that down, find it out before any of that happens. So I think we did pretty well. I mean, we got it all sold before. We were already bottling like 21s. <laughs> like, 21 couldn't come out fast enough. So we kind of ripped that through and hopefully it was in the market, you know, short enough where it just got drank and it was good and it's gone and not looking back. <laughs> You're about 10, 10 years into or to Oregon wine here. Mm -hmm. um, how have you seen the industry progress from your kind of initial impressions of it? And what does the industry look like in 2023 from, from your perspective? That's a big question. The Oregon wine industry is growing exponentially. Like from a you know, business kind of fiscal point of view, I mean, 
you know, being a finance guy, it's like a hockey stick. I mean, I think when I first came here, there was 650 wineries. Now we're almost 900. I mean, that is exponential growth. It is huge. And uh, <clears throat> this last year, I was on a panel at the uh, in Portland at the wine symposium, and I got to talk because uh, Bree Stock, she knows I'm a finance person, and uh, we are talking there about uh, kind of growing. The wineries that are kind of growing from no year, five to 1,000 cases to 3,000. That seems to be like the big jump in the Oregon wine industry. And uh, an interesting fact that I found out that almost 70% of wineries are sub 3,000 cases. And when I think about that, for what I do here, I go, that's one tank. I go, I bottle that in a day, essentially. And it's kind of like, for me, it was kind of hard to put it in retrospect, but like I'm kind of thinking about the numbers and looking at that like, wow, there's a lot of small wineries. And I think that's a, a benefit and a detriment all at the same time. I think uh, the biggest problem facing Oregon right now is there's too many small producers. And, and when you kind of have that dichotomy in the market with a small community like Oregon, you have like, the big, big guys who are loved and hated, and then you have the small, small guys who are loved and hated by all the big guys. So you have this kind of balancing beam where if you're kind of in the middle, like you're say three to like, I would say five to 8,000 cases, we call that like the death zone. Because, you know, you want to get, that's the point where you start to need distribution. You know, kind of in Oregon, maybe a few states, national, but you're not big enough for the distributors to even pay attention to you. So I think this is causing this kind of snowball of, I need to grow. But now that everyone is growing and everybody wants to come up here, fruit prices are just going absolutely through the roof. And you know, from what I talk at the symposium was, you know, what's the most important thing about winemaking? It's cost per gallon. You know, being a winemaker, cost per gallon is tantamount because if you're paying $4,000 a ton for fruit and you're only extracting out, say, you know, 150 gallons, you know, that's your fixed price. So if you want to be in the restaurant glass pour, you know, say $20 a bottle, you know, wholesale price category, you're already losing money. And it's kind of like, well, I, would, I want to be tasting room and sell $80, $90 bottles. Well, that's probably 80% of the Oregon wine industry. And what happens to the person who wants to buy a $50 bottle? You've already priced yourself out of some of those markets. So. A lot of these new guys that are coming up here and you know have these grandiose ideas, I try not to deflate the bubble, but maybe let some of the air out slowly, <laughs> you know. And uh, I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges that really kind of troubles me is I see the guys that are growing and they get that big growth and they kind of start to do it and then they run out of space because I think uh, Oregon wineries they've kind of set themselves and like we're going to do 5,000 cases and then that demand starts kicking in and that opportunity comes around and we're just going to do another 2,500 in this thing and it's like where do we do it and you know a lot of we've built this place for scale here so to us you know it's we're kind of I feel we're kind of ahead of that curve but a lot of a lot of clients come and you know, we need to do this. And it's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And I think they come and see our efficiencies that we've implemented here and that some of them kind of take that back. And, you know, because, you know, I see other places, it's like, God, why do you have like 10 interns? Like, you know, just get this one system and you can do it all at once or get a bigger tank. And I think that's kind of like that, 
line of kind of romance and business where I think Oregon's still kind of finding their way into there because there's a lot of places who, you know, have the resources and budget to do how they want and, uh, you know, have that beautiful dream wine where every grape is sorted out and uh, they can get the price point for it. And, you know, some places just can't do that yet or they have their brand and they have their uh, branding and PR firms and this and that. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different world. It's, it's, it's interesting to see mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for us, you know, we're, we're kind of very organic. I mean, we are who we are and, you know, some of our distributors are kind of just like, wow, you guys are very raw and tell how it is. It's like, well, yeah, that's what you get. You don't like it, we'll go somewhere else, you know? Which is that uh, it's different. Because a lot of, they come in, you're like, oh, we do this, we do that, and oh, look how beautiful it is, and you know? It's like, yeah, how does it taste? That's how we, that's how, that's pretty much what it comes down to, is like, how does it taste? <laughs> that's like the last honest winery here, I love it. Well, we try. <laughs> so what goes, what happens next for the industry? Where does it go from here? <sighs> well, <clears throat> I think we're gonna see, we need to plant more vineyards is what we need because uh, I think right now we're at that ramping phase where the demand's there but the fruit's not there and this is causing you know great prices to just absolutely go crazy bonkers and um, but I think the problem with that is there's like a fight in Oregon as well where there's crops in Oregon especially around here like seed crops hazelnuts actually are more profitable per acre than grapes are so it's kind of like why would I tear up my hazelnuts to plant grapes? You know, it kind of doesn't make fiscal sense. It's kind of more of a passion thing. And then, you know, you, we have, you know, as they say, the California implants coming where they're just kind of buying up swaths of land and planting grapes and, you know, kind of riding that, you know, price wave. I've, we've seen that quite a bit. Wineries are, you know, I wouldn't call it selling out, but, you know, I, I, I think another big problem not to, segue but is in Oregon that I just thought of is a succession. Mm -hmm. Oregon has a big succession problem. You know there's a lot of wineries winemakers that didn't have kids or their kids aren't interested. I think that's going to be a big problem. Well I don't call it a problem but point of contention in the industry going forward because uh, you know you have some big name wineries that are you know maybe wine to retire, change the reins and they might get gobbled up by, you know, the big corporate brands. Which I think it's a good thing myself because I, those big corporate brands have the, you know, the leverage and the distribution to really get Oregon out beyond Oregon and, uh, you know, out across the U.S. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest things because, you know, you, you hear the ramblings within the industry like, oh, we need to be nationwide, but, you know, there's maybe five, six wineries that can really supply that hole, you know, with that much volume for the national markets because, uh, you know, prices are very different, you know, east of the Rockies versus on the west coast. You know, a $20, $25 bottle, like, you know, that's someone's date night wine that they might buy once a month. Where here, it's kind of, we almost look at it as, like, that's cheap, it's probably not good. So, you know, there's that big dichotomy of, you know, economics, where you are, you know, I mean, Cabernet still reigns supreme, but I think Pinot's kind of coming up behind. So, you know, we have to convert the East Coast cab drinkers 
you know, the Washington cab drinkers, you know, stuff like that. So, and then that's a stylistic thing because, you know, if you have that Pinot file, you know, it should be light, very delicate, and then you start making Pinot like Cabernet, you know, blue, black, you know, a lot of color, that dark, dark ruby, and they're like, this isn't Pinot. And it's like, well, you know, then you kind of catch yourself in there, and, you know, if you're making a lot of volume of that, it's kind of like, ooh, this isn't what the market wanted. Ay, 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 what do we do now, you know? So I think uh, if you stand behind what you do and, you know, explain and kind of teach your customer base, like what you're doing and why, I think that's helpful. But I think kind of generally, broadly speaking, I think that's a problem going forward, you know, because, you know, some influencer could, you know, flip the industry on its head. You know, maybe Oregon's going to make butter Chardonnay in five years. I don't know. I know how to do it, but I don't look forward to it, <laughs> you know. But uh, I mean, it, you know, it could, it could happen tomorrow. I mean, that's how fast, you know, trends kind of change, even though it's hard to change trends in the wine industry since you can only do it one time a year and you'll have one shot at it. But, you know, with technology and blending now, you can, you can make all kinds of crazy things go on. What about what's next for you? Let's start here at Coelho. Uh, tell me about sort of as what you're looking ahead to and work here, uh, new challenges or projects here, um, and what's sort of on the horizon? Ooh, what's on the horizon? I need more tanks. It's <laughs> more grandkids. Yeah, more grandkids coming. But uh, no, we're just trying to, you know, iron out our production, you know, knock down some more distribution. Uh, what we're really trying to do is kind of, you know, expand on our kind of mid and upper tier levels because, uh, you know, we have, we feel we have three great AVAs and it kind of kills us. We, you know, spend all this time making all this wine to, you know, put it in, you know, like a distribution grade bottle. We want a little more, you know, D to C mm -hmm. and things like that. So how do we do that and kind of keep that market, you know, going as well? And, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of work from, you know, client base, all of these clients that are growing, coming to us and, you know, looking guidance for us about how to expand and grow and things like that. Well, you know, some guys come here, well, you know, they might be building a winery to, you know, take their production over there once they've grown into it, things like that. But it's always a fun and interesting challenge, just kind of keep the ball rolling and try to produce <clears throat> great wines that everyone can uh, enjoy. I was thinking about like new projects on the horizon. We're, uh, we're starting our sparkling project, which has been like almost four years in the making because uh, from what I see out in Oregon, a lot of people are doing like the vintage sparkling. And uh, since we do ports here, we do a lot of non-vintage port <clears throat> and a lot of the champagne houses, they kind of have their house style. And it's a lot of non-vintage blending and things like that. So I kind of had the idea of like, we should keep some sparkling back and do non-vintage blend and have it be like the port and stuff like that. And, you know, kind of make the house style first before we start to get into vintages and things like that. So kind of working on that. So you have all the kind of different components and pieces and things like that. And never tried it out with a few, you know, kind of small runs, like 25 case kind of little experiments here and there to kind of see like stylistically what we like, what pressure we like. And, because, I mean, you talk about sparkling, you think wine has a lot of parameters. Multiply it by about five for sparklings. You, know, you have pressure, you have dosage, you have your blends. You do all Pinot, do you do Chardonnay, do you oh, oak fermenting, barrel fermenting, how you press it, all, all, all the parameters. So still trying to work those things out.
about on a more um, personal level, anything else you are, you're, you're looking ahead to outside of wine? Any other, anything else on the horizon that's fun for you? Um, fun for me? No, I just like to work. I like to stay busy. As my wife can pretty much tell you that, uh, yeah, I'm working all the time. <laughs> Maybe a little vacation. My daughter's like five now. Hopefully she can start coming around here and help me drag hoses and kind of pass down to her, you know, what I do. And I mean, my wife works in the industry as well. You know, she manages a wine club and works in the taste room as well. So we're kind of a good mix because she works on the front end. I work in the back end. So she can uh, ooh and ah people and I can answer all their technical questions. So it's fun. Yeah, no, I just hope, you know, we can expand and, you know, just kind of keep doing what we're doing. I think my, my ultimate goal is I'd love to make, uh, you know, for me, like my, my target goal, I want to make 250,000 cases by myself with how we do it. <laughs> ultimate goal. That is an ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, at this facility in 2018, we bought our crossbow filter. And since then, we bought it in September, too. We just got done with big bottling two week, last week. We've done almost 1.3 million gallons. So that's, uh, that's quite a bit of gallons right there. So yeah, and our little, uh, we're about a four-man crew here, five-man crew sometimes. So we, uh, we move stuff around. So always got something going on. Stay busy, it keeps you young. <laughs> well, last question for you. You mentioned earlier sort of advice or words of wisdom. Tell me about someone comes to you and mentions they want to come into the Oregon wine industry and join it in some way. What, what do you tell them? I tell them to be open-minded and taste as much as you can at every place you can and never be afraid to ask questions. Always ask questions. Perfect. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Anything I didn't ask that I should have anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover today? Uh, I don't think so. Thank you so much for your time, sharing Absolutely. your story with us, and uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.